It's an idea that's excited the human imagination for centuries. Even ancient Greek mythology mentioned artificial beings and intelligent robots. But it probably wasn't until movies like War Games and The Terminator hit theaters in the early 80s that the concept of artificial intelligence really went mainstream in North America. Come with me if you want to live. Today, AI is everywhere. It's in our homes, in our cars, in our workplaces. In fact, you probably have a form of AI in your purse or pocket right now. Hey Siri, subscribe to Stroke of Genius. Okay, Stroke of Genius. Kidding aside, and despite the many ways in which it's made our lives easier, AI can also be problematic. Perhaps the biggest concern is the way things like AI-powered facial recognition and predictive analytics might adversely affect women, people of color, and other protected classes. But thankfully, the intellectual property system can be a force for good in the effort to create more ethical AI. This is Stroke of Genius, proudly presented by the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation. I'm your host, IP enthusiast, entrepreneur, and business growth specialist, Raha Francis. On this episode, I can't wait to moderate a special panel discussion on the high-tech world of artificial intelligence and machine learning. What are the risks of AI? How can we address issues like bias? And are there any IP-related solutions to all of this? Prepare your brains, get comfy, and let's jack in. From Terminators and Transformers to Marvel's megalomaniacal arch-villain Ultron, our pop culture landscape is littered with super-intelligent machines that may or may not be bent on world domination. Some real-life smart guys, like Stephen Hawking, have also expressed fears that AI poses a fundamental risk to human existence. Heavy. But whether you buy into the doomsday predictions or not, there are some legitimate causes for concern in the here and now. When biased AI models are deployed at scale, they can introduce real risks to our society. There's been plenty of media coverage about things like discriminatory facial recognition systems, targeted advertising that puts privacy at risk, and hiring algorithms that screen out applicants based on gender or race. Clearly, AI is still a work in progress. The good news is corporations, academics, and researchers are aware of the issues and are refining their products to improve our interactions with AI. IBM, for example, even pledged to stop developing one facial recognition technology used by law enforcement. And the IP protection system has a part to play in the quest for more ethical AI as well. To help me explain why, I'm excited to introduce my guests for this special panel discussion. First is Roberta Young, a California-based IP lawyer and litigator with Shook, Hardy & Bacon. She also has some firsthand experience with biased AI, Roberta, welcome to Stroke of Genius. Thank you, Raha. I appreciate the introduction. I'm also pleased to introduce Alex Bridge, Counsel Patents IP at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So let's get into it. Roberta, I'd like to start with you. As I just mentioned, you have a personal story about AI bias connected to a job search. Tell us about it. What happened? Well, Raha, I was a senior program manager and principal systems engineer at a major defense contractor. And while I did eventually become a director of engineering, it wasn't without a few stumbles and hiccups along the way. And one of those directly resulted from AI. 
I saw the perfect job posting and eagerly brought it to my career coach who was helping me refine the resume. We worked real hard to submit that properly and followed all of, I followed all of her advice, submitted that and, and eagerly waited. I, I had all the skills, all the required security clearances, and those skills weren't easy to come by. So when a week went by and I met with my career coach again, I had to tell her, I haven't heard anything. Is there a problem? And she looked at the posting. She said, they've reposted the job and they've now listed urgent need. And she thought for a minute and she said, I'm going to tell you to make one change and only that one change. And I want you to resubmit today. I made the change and probably less than three hours after submitting, I had a call. What was that resume change? I took my name off. My own name. I listed myself by my initials and the recruiter gave it away instantly in the phone call. He said, oh, I didn't expect you to be a woman. And I said, that's not a deal breaker, is it? And he goes, oh, no, no. Within a week, I had the job. And within six months of that, I was director of engineering at that company. But it really highlighted to me how AI gets used to seeing a certain subset and and how it can be both a force for good and a force for exclusion, unfortunately. Oh, my gosh. What an incredible, well, terrible, I guess, example of bias in AI. I mean... I can just imagine how shocking it might feel to hear a recruiter say that to your face, but to just understand then that that same sentiment is so systemically embedded in the recruiting process is, yeah, that's something. But it's worth pointing out, it's not actually the AI itself that's biased. Right, Alex? What's that saying you like to use from your college days? Yeah, garbage in, garbage out. AI is just math when you get down to it. and the math depends on the data that you give it. When you give it biased data in, it results in biased decisions coming out. Much of the difficulty of handling some of these difficult issues in AI is in getting the input data correct. When the AI is used to seeing only male qualified resumes, sometimes it latches on to the wrong pattern. And it's not surprising to see that sort of thing happen. It's unfortunate, but not surprising when you're dealing with data sets that may not have been properly filtered, properly screened to avoid those issues. Roberta, what's your take on that then? Does creating more ethical AI just boil down to refining our data sets or inputs? What does that mean to you? Well, to me, it means a couple of things. And I think Alex really hit the nail on the head with his garbage in, garbage out. That was exactly what I thought of at the very time that I was dealing with the issue. I think training the AI properly, examining how we create the data sets, how we refine them, how we train the neural networks is only one piece of it. The other has to do with how do we deploy those systems and how do we monitor those systems to ensure that the training and the refining that we're doing is actually working. So in effect, AI, like the rest of us, has to go back to school as we learn more about how data is manipulated. And this becomes very much a big data problem. Alex, you said something before we started recording that really struck me. It's simple, but it sort of sums up what we're talking about here. AI is hard. What did you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. The the 
Maths behind AI sometimes can be very simple. Sometimes you're just adding two numbers together to get an output. But when you start doing that hundreds or thousands of times over inside a machine learning model, it becomes very hard to understand what exactly the AI is triggering off of. Is it triggering off of the security clearances and the past experience? Or is it triggering off the name and the header of the resume? There was a a model that was created some years back that was doing a simple process. It was looking at images and categorizing whether they were a cat or whether they were a dog. There were two separate models that were created, and they set it up so that one of them would show where in the image it was sort of triggering the most off of to make that determination, and the same for the other one. And even though the accuracy was the same over this training data that they had, one was triggering off of where you would expect, maybe the nose, ears, the eyes. The other was picking foliage in the background. Evidently, the data set that it was using, most of the dog pictures were outdoors. Most of the cat pictures were indoors. And so you could fool that AI by taking a picture of a cat in the outdoors, and it would say it was a dog. And that just shows a simple example of where if you don't select your data set appropriately, it can go off in the wrong direction. And you won't even know until you get into the nitty gritty details of how that AI is coming to the decision that it makes. It's clear from what you're both saying, Ben, that refining data sets is a nuanced and complex endeavor. We're going to get into that in much more detail in a few minutes, but Before we go any further, I want to clearly connect the dots between AI and intellectual property. So real quick, how does IP allow for safer AI? Is it because intellectual property requires publication, for example, and that can be used to iterate and improve AI? Is it a question of investment, which wouldn't happen without exclusive rights, which come through intellectual property? Roberta, maybe you can start and then Alex, you could weigh in. Of course. One of the thoughts that I've had in in the approaches I've taken, I've actually written a number of AI-focused applications. And one of the things that in light of other challenges in the IP universe today, patentability is key. And also tying it to discrete outputs, that is very helpful because the goal of this, a patent is the limited right to exclude. You get a limited monopoly. And one of the key things also in our patent statute is improvements to new and useful arts. So key improvements in actually how the technology functions, for example, making the data sets run more efficiently, use less processing time, will will be incredibly helpful. And justifiably, those inventions should be accorded patent protection because of the investment in oftentimes sheer computing value that that's being done. But that also, by granting the limited monopoly, encourages monetization of it through licensing. And in many cases, licensing deals lead to further improvements in the technology. So that's how the wider universe of IP can benefit. Got it. That's that's a great overview. Alex, any further thoughts? So one of the initial concepts that come out when you start to study patents is what they call the quid pro quo. Uh, which is fancy Latin for you give and you get. And so with the patent, you get that limited right to exclude others for a certain period of time, but you also give the details of how it works. 
And even though competitors at that point don't have the right to do what you've patented, there is that licensing opportunity, but there's also that sort of spark that comes from reading how somebody else does it that might lead you in your own direction. And by convincing these companies and these researchers to put pen to paper and get their ideas for more ethical, more explainable, more transparent AI, getting it out there will spur on more innovation throughout the entire industry. So whether through incentivizing investment all the way to just spreading ideas without letting them be stolen, this is all a pretty solid overview for how IP can help. We still have a lot more to talk about, which we will do after a quick break. We'll be right back. I'm Raha Francis, and you're listening to Stroke of Genius, the podcast that explores intellectual property from the perspective of successful inventors, innovators, and creators. This season, we're tackling some myths and misconceptions to help you better understand how to navigate the tricky world of IP protection and learn how the system can work for everyone, especially people from historically underrepresented communities. Please follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more about the work of the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation, just visit ipoef.org. This episode is sponsored by Schwegman, Lundberg, and Wassner, with offices in Minneapolis, Silicon Valley, and Austin, Texas. Welcome back. Today, I'm learning how IP can play a role in efforts to solve some of the most pressing concerns surrounding artificial intelligence. Joining me for this special panel discussion are IP lawyer Roberta Young and Alex Bridge, a patent lawyer at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. So we touched on this before the break. Roberta, starting with you, could you dive a bit deeper into how IP can help address the risks we discussed regarding AI? Sure. The IP system can help in the sense that further research and development is necessary to refine the uses and deployment of the AI specifically. And how that helps is by being able to license and monetize the AI, a company can funnel more research and development money into AI, and this results in a cycle of continuous improvement that might not otherwise be funded if AI protection were not necessarily available. I think there's also a possibility that failure to properly deploy and update and be aware of the risks in improperly using AI could, in theory, subject a company to potential litigation risks. So continued development makes it better and provides evidence that a company is aware of and working to handle potential problems while also making these systems work better for everyone. We definitely see that on the practical level at HPE. There are projects ongoing now that are trying to expose the internals of how some of these machine learning models are acting. And not only is it a move in the direction of more ethical AI, but it's a move in the direction of more explainable AI understanding why the algorithm makes the decisions that it makes is a very important and very valuable piece of information to have. It's also extremely difficult to do. And the level of effort required by very smart people who have spent a very long time immersed in machine learning is something that a company doesn't undertake willy-nilly. 
it's something they really have to invest time and effort and repeated iterations into in order to see the results. Yeah, that that connection between ethical and explainable AI is an interesting and, and fundamental one. Roberta, question for you. You recently filed a patent application related to neural networks. What can you tell us about it, if anything? Well, not too much. It hasn't published yet. But the application I just wrote goes directly to the heart of what we're talking about today, eliminating bias and how these systems are being improved. And the inventors in this case were a combination of leading scientists at one of the major tech companies today, as well as a PhD candidate student. So this is the level of, shall we say, brain that's going into this. And they were directly concerned with addressing specifically that type of bias in the data sets. They provided a really interesting roadmap for how to resolve it. And they had the evidence to show that, and the application includes all of that material. That's fascinating stuff. Alex, you've mentioned a bit your take on the link between IP protection and better AI. In your opinion, has the industry fully explored that link? I think that's an ongoing process at this point. There are a lot of unanswered questions in the technology space. There's also this extra component where, because this has been a research-oriented field for so long, there's a strong presence of open source projects as well. And so there's this layering of different protections, both from the open source side and from the IP right side, the patent side, to try and protect some of these innovations that are just starting to come to the forefront right now. I'm glad you mentioned open source. Some people might perceive open source to be sort of the antithesis to IP protection. Would you agree with that? Not at all. They are very complementary ways of protecting your innovations. In fact, that's a common thread that comes out, particularly from engineers who might not have experience in the patenting process, that it feels like an either or. But particularly in the AI space where there are very strong open source projects, the patent protection can work to bolster those communities. It can work to protect some of the more proprietary parts of the technology that's being created. And it really works well together as a a one-two sort of grab bag of protections to use. Got it. Yeah, grab bag. I'm imagining kind of like a moat around the castle that is open source. Makes a lot of sense. Roberta, there's a belief out there that software isn't even patentable. Let's talk about that. Is is that just a misconception? Well, I have to say this is my chance to do the lawyer's classic answer and say, well, it depends. First off, there are some countries in the world that explicitly say software isn't patentable. Others, like the European Union, have very strict criteria for it. And I have clients that have successfully obtained many a patent, both in Europe and the U.S. The U.S. is focused on some very specific questions around software patentability, many of which I touched on earlier, like improving the actual functioning of the device or the processor, improving memory access, as long as they can be properly tied to the technology and, and as I would say, evident in the tangible world by either a processor or a a tool that we use, I don't really see a problem with that. 
I think for real concerns about patentability and the open source community, there's an alternative we haven't spoken about, which is trade secret, which I would say is much more the antithesis to the patent protection because you're holding it very, very secret. For example, the Coca-Cola formula. And while many in the AI community are favoring open source with good reason, we're letting the sunshine in as the best disinfectant for processes that may be rather opaque and may be more biased than was known. For an alternative, such as in some of the defense operations and that, it may be more suitable to opt for trade secret protection. But I think the combination allows developers as well as companies and inventors to select a proper approach to developing it and to protecting it that best beats their needs for their end product. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction you make between trade secrets and patents. It even goes back to what Alex had mentioned about the quid pro quo. What are people going to get out of this? Leading from that, do either of you see a role for other forms of IP protection in this space? We mentioned trade secrets. What about copyrights, trademarks, et cetera? I think copyright is the next most obvious IP right that might be relevant here. And it could come into play in many ways. That source code itself is copyrighted. So there's some protection from that just being sort of taken without attribution, without permission. But there's also questions about the data sets themselves. A lot of effort goes into making high quality, good data sets. Often there's human labeling that happens to these data sets in order to allow training to happen. And all of that effort currently is in this murky area as to what sort of protection is afforded to it. And same on the other side of the machine learning model. What about the outputs? Sometimes the outputs or even the model itself might not have full protection under patents or even under copyright at this point. But these are open questions that are being addressed right now by industry professionals. Got it. Yeah, it seems like it's a very nuanced discussion and like you're saying, an ongoing one. And there are those who think we're in a sort of wild west right now when it comes to AI and that companies are just kind of putting technology out there willy-nilly into the world to see what happens. Alex, is that a fair comment or a not-so-hot take? I think that there are some that might be doing that. I recall an article I read a few weeks back about an individual who took a bunch of comments from some CD places on the internet and fed them into an AI and then released that AI back on that comment site just to see what would happen and just see when they figured out finally that it was an AI and not a real person talking to them. So there are certainly some opportunity for abuse. And that that was a relatively benign example, but there's opportunity there. I don't think that your average company is so quick to jump and deploy some of these AI solutions. And I don't necessarily think that the ethical component is the driving factor there, although it is an important component. It's not a good reputational thing to deploy an AI model that doesn't work, whether that be due to bias or just due to lack of data. Roberta, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Are we in a Wild West when it comes to companies putting out AI-related technology or not? Well, I think Alex made the perfect point. There are some companies that are out to take advantage 
what I see for the most part is they are a minority because, well, they may, shall we say, cash in in the short term, long term, they will lose their customer base. Most companies want to build a suitable product that will be widely adopted, continuously improved to ensure that they have continued use and application of the product. And with the result, a continued stream of happy customer users that will buy updates, additional products and software. So I think for the most part, a solid monetary influence is certainly there. But I think also, as Alex pointed out, the reputational damage done by the Wild West approach can linger long after the initial publication. It used to be said that, well, that article will be in in the garbage bin of tomorrow. No, on the internet, this stuff will live forever. So a reputational hit by acting irresponsibly is a lot more severe now than it used to be. And in some sense, that too is a good policing mechanism. Totally. It makes sense that what can seem like a short-term monetary advantage can turn into a long-term reputational disadvantage. So that makes a lot of sense. This has been a super informative discussion, but before we wrap up, I'd love to get some final thoughts from both of you. Alex, you're up first. What's the one thing people need to know or remember about AI and intellectual property? Sure. I'd go back to AI is hard. There are a lot of really smart people working on this. We have our advanced development group, QL Packard Labs, working day and night on solving some of these issues. And I think that what you have to look forward to is a robust set of solutions that try and tackle these issues coming out on a iterative basis as these people solve the small problems that make up the broader issue of AI ethics. Awesome. Roberta, now it's your turn. What's your main takeaway from this conversation? My main takeaway is that AI is going to become a driving force in technology innovation for the foreseeable future, simply because so much of where we're going involves manipulating large data sets that simply aren't feasible to do. Even if you have an army of folks crunching the numbers, that's simply too large. That said, the IP system gives us an opportunity to properly protect that investment and to make advances in those incremental ways, protecting them incrementally and monetizing them incrementally. At the end, yes, I think we'll see this become a technology that's ubiquitous in our daily lives. We're getting closer to it every day, and it behooves every company to consider what their policies are around AI. Are we developing patentable material? Are we using it appropriately? And what do we need to look at to maintain our reputation and our reputational capital in this environment going forward? Amazing. Amazing. It's it's a really interesting, complicated, and, and clearly ongoing topic when it comes to ethical and explainable AI. So huge thanks to both of you for lending your voices and your expertise to Stroke of Genius. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having me, Raha. My guests today have been IP attorneys Roberta Young and Alex Bridge. I gotta say, going into this episode, I wasn't even clear on the connection between better AI and IP. But much like I learned during our season premiere about Shark Tank, IP protection is a critical component of any inventor's journey, whether they've invented a better way to make coffee or a better way to train AI. Patents, for example, 
allow you to put your product out there to see how it performs under real-world conditions without having to worry about copycats or bad actors. Copyright, as we heard today, also has a role to play here, primarily in protecting code. And even trade secrets are a relevant part of the conversation about more ethical AI. There are still some questions about protecting things created by AI. But that's a topic for another day. I'm Braha Francis, and this is Stroke of Genius, brought to you by the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation. If you like what you heard, please give us a follow wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the work of the IPO Education Foundation and to find some useful IP-related resources, just visit ipoef.org. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now. 